This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Combining the Esoterrorists with Knight's Black Agents. George Harriman in the Dreamlands. The Beardmore Viking Hoax. And Happy Science. All I want for weirdness is my... Uh, Don't you mean Christmas? No, I mean weirdness. All I want for weirdness is Weird Little Elf from Atlas Games. Oh, yes, the little bitty holiday game that's a little bit weird. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect not-boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it that a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. But the elves can be mischievous too, and Santa's having trouble telling who's who. So he gathers all the elves around and asks them one simple question. So it's playable with practically any group, any size, any age. It's a light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. It's an acute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. It's perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends. You know they don't already own it. And keep one for yourself. The rattle of dice. The thump of miniatures. The crunch of Doritos. The creepy indistinguishable marks in the throat of the dead man and Peter Frampton coming alive, but hopefully not in a resurrecty kind of a way. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut where beloved Patreon backer Bart Malio asks, do we have any advice on combining the esoterrorists and NBA skills, power levels, enhancing the scope of the Ordo Veritatis? Enhancing the scope, Robin, they're already a global inter-bureaucratic organization that actually does what it says on the jar. I mean, it's already impossible. (laughs) Yes. So, well, I I guess what we're mostly looking at is expanding the scope of their involvement in the episodes. Right. Uh, But to back up a bit, and we'll get to that other thing later, this is already pretty easy because the, the... Things that are in Esoterra's flowed into Knight's Black Agents, and you took them and developed them a bit more. And so it's uh, probably a pretty simple matter to then take the things that you took up a notch in NBA and put them back into the Esoterra. So why don't you talk about what you took from Esoterra's and and took up a level in Knight's Black Agents? Yeah, the uh, Knight's Black Agents really is the Esoterra's, but Jason Bourne versus Vampires. The combat... In Knights Black Agents is taken from the Esoterrorist fact book and tweaked only a little bit to make it generally uh, slightly less expensive. Right. So there, there's a, a concept in there called the Special Suppression Forces game. Right. Where you, in the Esoterrorist, you don't just play the investigators who are going in and solving X-File style crimes. And then at the end, you call in the SSF and they, you know, if you still have monsters to mop up that you didn't wind up fighting with at the end, you know, you call in right. these guys and they come in and blow everything up. Well, there's an alternate campaign frame where you can play the blower uppers who yeah. come in with the big guns and stuff. And that's where the advanced combat rules first came from because the idea is that you're going in and conducting a, a sort of a bug hunt. Mm-hmm. And since Knights Black Agents is, you know, evolves from the sort of super spy genre, the, the, the James Bonds, the uh, Jason Bournes, where a spy you know, in this fictional genre, does both intelligence and analysis, and then also, you know, kills people, whereas the CIA has whole different units for this stuff. The notion is combine the special security forces or the special suppression forces and the esoterrorist, you know, X-Files-y type investigators into the same basic character, which involved then sort of compressing some of the more abstruse and finicky investigative skills down so that you could have one character who practically could be both an investigative a super spy and a, a super spy badass, 
you know, if you wanted to, or you, of course you can, you know, play to one end or the other, the way that people have done since time immemorial in role-playing games. Right. And so really, I think if you're actually taking the universe of the Ezoterrorists and then the structure of Knight's Black Agents, what we're envisioning is something where you are doing, uh, you know, Jason Bourne style fleeing and chasing, but instead of running away from vampires, you're running away from outer dark entities as abetted by the titular Ezoterrorists mm-hmm. who brought them to this world. And so really, I think what you're expanding the scope of is not the Ordo Veritatis, not the good guy organization who are basically the CIA and the FBI and MI5 and all of those other groups put together as a superstructure. They're already expanded enough, as you mm-hmm. said, but rather you're expanding the evil conspiracy beyond how it's envisioned in the Ezoterrorists. Right. The idea uh, rather than some uh, r- random group of losers who are trying to unnerve Uber drivers in some flyover American city, it becomes that that sure still happens, but they're directed by some larger force. So you could have a global esoteric conspiracy, a la Spectre, except for the outer dark. You could have an outer dark entity that is trying to direct things a la Nyarlathotep. You could have, you know, even rival groups of esoterrorists, each, you know, plotting, you know, they're destroying the veil in their own way, but, you know, angry at each other to set up sort of geopolitical play if you wanted to do it that way. Or it could just be that, oh, no, this is esoterrorists, you know, in, uh, you know, 2007 or 2006. Yeah, that was just local and, and, and sporadic in the same way that, you know, anti-terror movements were in the 90s. But, oh, no, look, now there's a global directorate of vileness and evil. And, you know, it's a different world and we have to step it up in the, you know, the, the old divisions between the investigators and the SSF are falling away as you're building new super squads that are capable of, of doing both because you can't afford to spend the time waiting for the SSF to get there. You have to be the man on the scene and take care of it. Right. And the, the implication of the Order of Veritatis is that it is a thing that takes place in relatively free democratic countries. So the idea that there is a, a counterforce where the different authoritarian regimes all kind of get together under the table to go, well, we've, we all, we all know about the outer dark and, you know, we've found little cells here and there while the cells that we think we can use will recruit the cells that we don't think we can use. will execute and take their magic ritual information from them. And we will now get together and make a deal and be the, the counter ordo. And mm-hmm. so that's the thing that you presumably discover in the very first edition uh, session of an NBA style uh, esoteric game, and then you have to get uh, away from them and to your bosses in order to find out, you know, that this new thing has has been created and is on the run. The thing about the Born trilogy and about Knights Black Agents that is kind of incompatible with my ethos for the Esoterrorists is that you're alone. You're no longer able to draw on your agency because, mm-hmm. as in the Born trilogy, the CIA there's a cell in the CIA and they're the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But I always wanted to do with the Esoterrorists was to never do that. Right? Yeah. Because because a, it's a it's a very tired trope for one thing. It's a tired trope and it damages play because. The whole point of the Ezoterrorists is you can just rely on your group to be the good guys. They kind of get out of your way and expect you to do your job, absent the part at the end where they send in the special suppression forces. But they are not going to betray you and be Mr. Johnson, because once you introduce the likelihood of that into the game, the players become... Uh, ultra paranoid, and they're supposed to just be regular paranoid. Right. Uh, They're not supposed to turtle up. And so there is sort of a puzzle as to why, if the Order of Veritatis are always going to be the good guys, why suddenly you're on the run alone. And so it might just be that you're not alone, but you're just on the run. You're kind of overwhelmed that there's a, a big lot of forces. And, you know, instead of a whole campaign where you're on the run, it's just, you know, you've found this you know, you're in hostile territory. I guess the thing is that most of the action would occur within the borders of these different authoritarian regimes. So the reason you can't call in the Ordo very much is that you're in Russia or you're in China or Iran. Or you're in some, you know, fracture zone state where the Ordo can send in the SSF, you know, if you're in uh, Niger or wherever. But the trouble is the Russians can also send in Wagner. So, Try not to get on the radar, dummy, is the answer there. And at some level, 
there are situations where the Ordo, you know, you, you are doing missions at home domestically for the Ordo, and it's just fine, and it's a regular Ezoterra mission. There's the Martini straight up version of Knights of Black Agents, where you, your agency just refills your pool of, of network and whatnot, and you can play a completely trustworthy agency, and everything works just fine if you're playing sort of Tom Clancy-style action, but you can do that with NBA just fine, but it's, you know, NBA is tuned for these sort of, you know, one ranger, one riot type attitudes where you are, are out at the tip of the spear. And again, you can posit, for example, in a fictional world that the CIA is good and does its job. Uh, but if you're the CIA guy in Afghanistan, you still can't count on anyone around you because the CIA is busy doing a bunch of other things over, you know, in a bunch of other countries. And you are the CIA in Afghanistan. You're expected to take care of it. So, that is the sort of situation you could also, you know, if you turn it into a, you know, behind enemy lines, literally situation where you're in Russia or China or Iran and dealing with a weaponized esoterror movement, that becomes really an entirely different game from both nice black agents and the esoterrorists almost. I mean, it, you return the hunted quality of NBA, but, you know, you can't afford to get five points of heat in a game where you're already in Beijing. They, they yeah. don't take kindly to heat there, for example. Yes, exactly. So, as usual, when you meld two things that are similar but distinct in uh, certain ways, you're going to have to come up with a, a third thing. And I think that that might be the, you know, if you really merge them, that's what you would wind up with. You would have, you know, you're behind enemy lines and, you know, you might be, you know, attached to various embassies, uh, but you have to keep your cover. And again, I think that depends on the tolerance that players have towards a thing where they are over time having to hunker down and, and, and hide and, and maintain secrecy because that's something that at least one player in your group does want to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. At least one player group is going to, you know, they're, they're going to be at the cafe in Shanghai and they're going to say, well, I pull my gun and you go, well, as a seasoned, oh no, I pull my gun. Yeah. So. Uh, I guess that's how you get on the run and the rest of the campaign is you're just, you're not running away from the outer dark entities even. You're just running away from what uh, your uh, hot-headed player did. From, from what Steve two. did. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I guess uh, we should flee this segment for the uh, increased danger and hazard of another segment that lies on the other side of this commercial. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. It's time once more to head up the hallowed steps of some sort of institution that presumably has Corinthian columns and big steps and marbles and uh, echoing chambers to uh, what is surely a wine and cheese reception because we're once more in the vast, vast confines of the culture hut. And this time around, at the behest of estimable backer Robert Wolf, we're going to answer a number of questions about George Harriman. And uh, since there's a number of questions, I'm going to just start off. Well, I'm not even going to ask the first question. Uh, I'm going to start by asking Ken for you to explain to the listeners who are not Robert Wolf who George Harriman was and uh, what impact his fabulous, surreal comic strip creation, Crazy Cat, had on, I think, really mostly on, on high culture, because it was an example of uh, a popular culture that 
wasn't that popular except with its publisher. Yeah, yeah, it turned out. No. Um, yeah, uh, George Harriman is uh, born in 1880, born in New Orleans. He was of a, a Creole or mixed race family. When he left New Orleans, which he did at a fairly early age, uh, went to California, he immediately started passing as white because he did not want to be a black man in uh, 1890s America, which I, I assume was probably a pretty rational decision from his perspective. So uh, he kept it a, a very dark secret. It was secret even to historians of comics, what his actual ancestry was. So for the whole rest of his life, he just sort of went through and if people asked, he would say he was Greek sometimes or French or just Portuguese or whatever, and just make it up and, and keep going. And he wore a lot of hats and that was, that was his methodology. But anyway, the other thing that he did was become a superb cartoonist. And back in the uh, turn of the century, you didn't have particularly good photo reproduction techniques and film didn't let you take fast shots of things. So the way that you illustrated the story of a boxing match or a baseball game is you had a cartoonist draw it like you would have a court artist, uh, a sketch artist in a courtroom draw the testimony. You have the same thing going on at sports events. And so there was a gigantic need in America just structurally for cartoonists. So if you're ever wondering why did America invent the comic strip and become the the home of comics well as always the only thing marx is good for is answering questions about art because we had a lot of cartoonists that we needed to fill the mass publication newspapers that were coming out at the time thanks to literacy and whatnot uh people care about sports they wanted to see what the sports looked like you'd hire a cartoonist george harriman gets a job on the new york american which is a hearst paper as a sports cartoonist in 1904 and immediately is a success he gets along super well with his buddy cartoonists they have a uh, great fun and as the other cartoonists begin to branch out and do uh, syndicated cartoons he also begins drawing a cartoon for the New York Evening Journal, which is the first paper he moved to from the American. And it, this is the uh, classic comic Dingbat Family that no one cares about, except <laughs> that it introduced the Dingbat Family cat, who had at that point no name. Right. And so the premise of this strip is that it's it's not about the Dingbat Family. It's about the family who lives downstairs from them reacting to the their hijinks. Right, to their ridiculous activities. Yes. So the in interesting perspective, it's somehow not a memorable cast of characters that we uh, now have on Lunchboxes. <laughs> right. So anyway, he's, he's drawing the Dingbat Family's neighbors and their cat. And then their cat begins having sort of his own little weird adventures, because who doesn't love a cat? And that sort of starts becoming a space filler when his comic strip doesn't fit, you know, the whole page. So he would do a little cat cartoon in the bottom. And then the cat started chasing a mouse and the mouse started chasing a cat. Standard, you know, Aristotle, of course, knew about this. Yes. You have a cat, you're going like to have a mouse. mice and cats more than they like people with bad neighbors. Exactly. This is why um, uh, Aristophanes is beloved forever. And whoever Greek tragedian it was wrote about people's bad neighbors is forgotten. Anyway, the little side bit of Dingbat family becomes its own comic in 1913 called Crazy Cat. And Crazy Cat is set sort of in a weird, surreal, visual version of the right. American. And it's Crazy Cat with two Ks. Yes. K for crazy, K for cat. K for cat. Uh, set in a weird sort of surrealistic version of the American West in Cosonino County, which is a real county in Arizona. But the depiction of it does not... It, it does not look that much like Cosonino County. Harriman, as I mentioned, he'd moved out to LA as a young man. He visited Arizona around 1907. So he sort of fell in love with the West anyway, as do many Americans. And so that's sort of the mythic imaginative space that he puts Crazy Cat. And the mouse by, the, by this time has got a name. He's Ignat's mouse. Crazy remains ungendered throughout the whole comic. So early gender fluid representation, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so Non-binary, like a sprite, Harriman once explained, like mm -hmm. a magical being uh, to someone pressuring him to come through one way or the other. On the gender. And it, it turns out that uh, Ignat's mouse goes around his life throwing bricks at Crazy Cat because he's a mouse. He doesn't like a cat. He's going to throw a brick at it. Well, the cat, Crazy, of course, loves the mouse. Crazy loves Ignat's. And 
considers the thrown bricks a, a bill at due, if you will, a love letter, that this is just Ignatz's love language and Crazy understands it because Crazy is large of soul. The third aspect of the triangle that gets introduced a little later is a dog, of course, again, Aristotle could have told you this, named Office a Pup. And Office of Pup uh, has no romantic uh, skin in the game, but believes in law and order and that you shouldn't be throwing bricks at people. So Office of Pup is sort of a white knighting, if you will, for Crazy Cat, who doesn't need it because Crazy Cat is perfectly happy having bricks thrown at it. And so that triangle somehow runs for 30 years. (laughs) And a lot of, as as you might suspect, the the charm of of the comic becomes the sort of wild, dreamlike, observational thoughts that Crazy or Ignatz or Officer Pup or some of their weird friends, they have other animals that show up, but those are the three big ones, engage in in chat and speculation. Harriman breaks the fourth wall very early, so is they're commenting on their positioning on the panel page. They're talking about the reader. They're doing all the things that everyone thought Grant Morrison invented. Grant Morrison would, I'm sure, be the first to tell you that they were just picking up the banner that George Harriman first flew in 1913 with Crazy Cat. Right. And it's written in a sort of a phonetic uh, weirdo uh, dialect, which is something that Walt Kelly will pick up later in in Pogo. And the thing that is... Yeah, Pogo is like Crazy Cat if Crazy Cat were serious. Right. <laughs> and the thing that interests us here is the surrealism of the, of, of the world of Crazy Cat, which even when the events are happening in the panels are static... The southwestern landscape behind them is moving and shifting. Uh, so it's not just uh, surreal on a meta level, but the the landscape has a weird sort of a, a dreamlike quality to it. And so the first of the questions uh, that uh, Robert Wolf is actually posing to us is, what was George Harriman's effect on the dreamlands? And was it intentional? Because, of course, as we know from Dream Hounds of Paris, the uh, surrealist artists working a little later in the 20s and 30s in, in Paris began to uh, be able to manipulate the dreamlands because of their attunement to it. Uh, We know uh, from the history of surrealism that they took material from what was from pop culture or what was regarded as pop culture and imported that into the soup of things that they were dealing with, along with uh, what they thought was sort of fake uh, spiritualism. And that was one of the things that they uh, handled. Now, we don't have evidence. I don't think that André Breton or Salvador Dali were directly influenced by Crazy Cat. They certainly were by Fantomas. And certainly, actually, it was high culture, Ken, that embraced uh, Harriman even more so than just the regular person on the street. Yeah, you can certainly assume that somewhere out in the, you know, the lands of the, of dream, you know, between Lomar and Menar, out in some mythical west, there's a dream Cosonino County where activity is happening. It's uh, right near Ulthar. Yeah, the, the the cats of Ulthar are obviously buddies with crazy. Uh, the American West has been a dreamland, you know, since before Lovecraft, before the Surrealists, before anyone. It's been that area where you projected your hopes and fears and wishes and fantasies. So, obviously, part of the dreamland has mirrored the American West and its treatment. I don't know if Lovecraft would approve. In fact, I'm sure he would not approve of cowboys in the dreamlands, but there's nothing that says that you can't color your dreamlands uh, thusly. But anyway, Harriman and Crazy Cat do become popular with not just New York audiences, but with specifically intellectual New York audiences, college students, I think, pick him up first in the same way that college students in America picked up Tolkien first. Right. So another of the questions that Robert poses is, did Harriman's connection to Walter Kuhn's 1913 Armory show, Harriman's 1917 encounter with the Vortices through the Penguins Artist Group and E.E. Cummings' advocacy of Crazy Cat in post-war Paris, affect the efforts of the Dreamhounds of Paris? So... E.E. E. Cummings was not huge on Andrew Breton's uh, radar, but uh, certainly if, you know, Louis Bunuel or Paul Elouard went to Althar and started seeing this weird cat caping around and the landscape beginning to undulate and change, surely in the action of your game, uh, they might uh, remark upon that and uh, have uh, someone talk to Gertrude Stein or another of their American friends and figure out what's going on with these weird English-speaking cat and dog and uh, and dog. And I mentioned that college students became big fans of Crazy Cat. E.E. E. Cummings became a big fan of Crazy Cat at Harvard, hung Crazy Cat all over his walls. When he went to uh, France as an ambulance driver, you know, 
kept up with the Hearst papers so he could read Crazy Cat, avidly collected shipments of Crazy Cat friends would send him to them in Paris. He would give them to his other friends. And a, a poet named Matthew Josephson, a different American poet, did introduce Crazy Cat to Louis Aragon, the surrealist poet. So that is your, That's your connection. There. looking for a direct connection to the actual Dreamhounds, Josephson turning Louis Aragon onto Crazy Cat is... As, as close as you're going to get, you know, absent some lost Dali painting about uh, mouse and brick. Yeah. And Aragon actually turns on his fellow surrealists and turns away from them. And so it may very well be that once he began to see, you know, Harriman affecting the dreamlands, that he decided that this whole project of theirs of messing around in the dreamlands was just too dangerous. Because what if American unserious weirdos... Uh, who probably aren't even Marxists get involved. In get, they, get involved. That, that may account for his break from the surrealists. Yeah. As, as I mentioned, cartoonists were a gigantic part of the American art establishment at the turn of the century. And so, especially in New York City, where Harriman is working on this, in this big, you know, open plan bullpen sort of place with a bunch of other cartoonists, one of the cartoonists at a different paper, a Pulitzer paper, not a Hearst paper, is a guy named Walter Kuhn, who by day or by night, I don't know, what when you are doing your off hours, if you're a sports cartoonist, but it's the other time he was trying to become a serious painter. And that's the guy that organized the armory show. So Kuhn is friends with Harriman. Kuhn is friends with a lot of the guys on Harriman's floor at the Hearst papers. Some of them, in fact, exhibit at the armory show, including the artist of mutton, Jeff exhibit in the armory show. And they're always saying, Harriman, do something for the Armory Show. This is going to be a great show. And Harriman's like, ah, eh, I, I, I don't need to. I'm good. Um, so there's no evidence that he ever attended it, but a bunch of his buddies did. His buddies exhibited there. You can certainly assume that he was connected to it. So if you're looking for a, a key that turns for American surrealism, that's that show because that's where Duchamp exhibits a new descending a staircase. And for a while, Every cartoonist in New York is doing parodies of Duchamp because it's a hilarious thing. It's fun to do as an artist. It's fun to do because you're tweaking the nose of high culture. And it's just a, a fun new way to look at things. So Crazy Cat at this time is, be, is running vertically. So there's scenes of, you know, Crazy Cat descending a staircase that, that Harriman does. Right. This is and, vertically. And Duchamp was very gnomic. So if he was influenced by Harriman, he would not have let anyone know about that. It was, it was the other way around. I mean, Harriman was influenced by Duchamp at, at this point. And then Kuhn organizes the Penguins artist group that Robert Wolf asks about. And the, that holds a show for the Vorticists who are, I don't believe that you can necessarily pin them down to the dreamlands necessarily, or, or maybe they're a warning of the scary things that are going to happen in the dreamlands. If you keep messing with it. Right. And Wyndham Lewis is the most famous Vorticist. And he's most famous for his writing, which I guess tells you, what you need to know about the Vorticists. Robin, do you have a Vorticist connection to the Dreamhounds at all? Well, the Vorticists are sort of in there with the Futurists and so on, and they're the sort of uh, side paths of modern art start. There are people uh, that weren't quite so fruitful or quite so playable. Uh, speaking of things being playable, though, let's jump back to another of uh, Robert's questions, uh, which is, this gets to the question of how can other people who are not themselves surrealists or surreally inclined influence the Dreamland? And so the question was, was William Randolph Hearst aware of Harriman's connection to the Dreamlands, because presumably anyone interested in wielding power the way that Hearst was would see this as as a, a source of power and try to uh, leverage it. And I sort of suspect uh, that he probably was only influenced on a subconscious level by it, because we I don't think we have any record of him trying to uh, leverage the Dreamlands or suffering a terrible curse, uh, unless you count Citizen Kane as a <laughs> terrible curse laid upon him. But certainly he quite uncharacteristically loved this weirdo strip and kept it in there, even though it wasn't all that uh, popular. So it may be that just, you know, he occasionally saw Althar in his dreams uh, the way that regular dreamers do. But I certainly don't think he's the sort of person like not even Andre Breton uh, was able to manipulate the dreamland. So I don't think Hearst was. Yeah, I, I think what Hearst, if you want Hearst in your game, and you're doing an American Dreamhound sort of a game. I mean, Hearst does hire Windsor McKay, the famous cartoonist of Little Nemo and Slubberland and Dreams of a Rarebit Fiend. So if there's an American artist who is exploring the Dreamlands, it's not Harriman, it's Windsor McKay. 
And Windsor McKay, of course, was writing for a Pulitzer paper, the Herald. Hearst hires him away in 1911 and keeps him there until 1924. 1922 is when a ballet of Crazy Cat comes out. Art critic named Gilbert Seldes, who was a very fancy high art critic, another Harvard guy, he'd published about Crazy in The Dial, which was the most modernist literary paper, and then did another article about Crazy Cat in uh, Vanity Fair that became his chapter about comics in the seven arts, the seven lively arts. Um, so Seldis is putting crazy up in the, in the high art world. There's a ballet and it is that same year that Hearst gives Harriman a lifetime $750 a week contract with Hearst's uh, syndicate, the King Features syndicate and complete creative control of the strip. Again, very uncharacteristic of William Randolph Hearst. And there are two theories. One, William Randolph Hearst just got it. He just loved Crazy Cat, thought it was excellent. Or two, he loved seeing a comic strip that he basically created uh, in his mind in the pages of Vanity Fair and getting a ballet and thinking, now finally high artists will take me serious, which of course was a ongoing problem of a nouveau riche jerk like William Randolph Hearst. So, you know, who can say why, but 750 a week in 1922 is like getting a $13,000 a week contract now. So it's, uh, it, it's good money at, at the time. And Harriman immediately moves to Hollywood. And I think that's where, if you want Hearst as the sort of shadowy citizen Kane like figure who can't himself get into the dreamlands and become king like Karanes can, but wants to shape it. Hearst has also, of course, got his grubby fingers in Hollywood. He's making right. movies. And what is the other way to get into the dream world than through dream palaces? And right. you, if you wanted to go a whole different way with a uh, dream hounds of Hollywood situation, right. rather than. And this is what gets us to uh, Robert's fourth and final question, which is, was Harriman's association with the Uplifters Club, named by founding member L. Frank Baum, a deliberate working of some sort to align the dreamlands with Los Angeles? And was Walt Disney... Uh, deliberately tied into it uh, due to the resemblance between uh, crazy and, and, and Ignatz and, and Mickey. Right. And I'm going to think probably given that Walt Disney was the great tamer of myth of commercializing and uh, neutering and making, you know, the brothers uh, grim uh, safe, making all of these other things uh, palatable and commercial and, you know, mainstream picket fence that probably Hearst, I imagine at some point began to see that powerful people like him or even Walt were never going to get a hold of the dreamlands uh, the way they wanted to. And so it was time to shut down the power of crazy cat by filtering it into Disney. That's certainly a possibility. Harriman joins the uplifters around 1931. He's buddies with Hal Roach. Jack Roach is a member of the uh, uplifters. Harriman may or may not have written a couple of scripts for some Hal Roach shorts that are now forgotten and lost. The Uplifters, by the way, founded by Chicagoans who'd moved to Los Angeles and said, why can't we have nice things like in Chicago here? By 1931, Will Rogers, Daryl Zanuck, Busby Berkeley, Douglas Fairbanks, and of course, Walt Disney are all members, as is Harriman's old friend, actor cartoonist Leo Carrillo. And Leo Carrillo is one of his oldest California friends. So if you're looking for a a through line, uh, the career of Leo Carrillo, who becomes a cartoonist and then goes into acting, is sort of the other end of this Dreamhounds of Hollywood uh, campaign. And you can certainly, you know, think that Disney and Hearst are in it together to tame out the Dreamlands, or maybe rather than tame it, they're just trying to exploit it. They They recognize that, you know, they can't go to the Dreamlands. Most people can't influence the Dreamlands in that way. But if you can bring elements of the dreamlands into the real world, a crystallizer of dream a la Ramsey Campbell, you can, you know, create a thing that people can't get enough of. And it might've been, you know, San Simeon, of course, is full of all these artifacts from everywhere. Hearst has got his teams out looking for the crystallizer of dreams. Walt Disney is trying to crystallize the dreams, you know, through cell animation because he knows cartoonists have got some sort of gift. And then Disneyland becomes this sort of triumphant place where the dreamlands become tangent to Earth. If you, you know, are going around the right part of Frontierland at the right moment, the Frontierland starts moving behind you. Maybe you, you know, hear the zip of a thrown brick and suddenly you're in the dreamlands. That becomes your derive. If you're an American dreamer, you can go in through the dreamlands that he's built the equivalent of the ghoul catacombs in Paris 
by building Disneyland. That takes you into the 50s and uh, the beats and uh, pop art, if you yeah, want to do. Yeah, and it's really pop art who get Mickey into the, the dream lines, I think. But if we've moved all the way to the 1960s, we've moved out of the uh, time frame of these questions and therefore <laughs> uh, must declare the culture hut closed and must head off in search of another hut. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure that any bricks tossed at this podcast are thrown with love by becoming a besotted Patreon backer very much like Benjamin Rawls, Andrew Dacey, Andy M. Young, Volpine, and Derek Yates. The clink of pot sherds, the clatter of pickaxes, the stop using pickaxes on those pot shirts shout from the guy in the pith helmet welcome us into the carefully gradated confines of the archaeology hut. But today the pot shirts are cold because they're in Canada, Robin, and uh, they're not even pot shirts. They're chunks of iron. Right. Pretty rusty ones at that. And uh, this, I guess, is Canada's great contribution to being gold. So uh, archaeology wise, not in any other way, but uh, I guess this means it's your job to tell our beloved listeners about the Beardmore hoax. Right. And so this is I think it's interesting in that it was a pretty big historical deal in its day that is sort of ebbed away. But is like a lot of other archaeological hoax stories in that it's a story of motivated reasoning and people lining up on the other side of it, uh, mostly for underlying cultural reasons rather than wanting to look exactly at the evidence. And it's also, I think, tells us a lot about Ontario in the 1930s and Ontario society. So if you want to run a trail in and around these incidents or in and around the Royal Ontario Museum, or as it was then, uh, five different Royal Ontario Museums of different departments, one of them being archaeology, I think it is an interesting sort of cultural spotlight. So I'm going to try really hard to condense a story with a lot of characters <laughs> into one with only a, a handful of them. So if you want the full, exhaustively detailed, you'll never need to read another book about this uh, version of this, find Beardmore, The Viking Hoax That Rewrote History by Douglas Hunter, who goes into great detail about every single piece of correspondence that is involved in this story of real Viking artifacts that were assaulted, placed in the wrong place, and made uh, people think that the uh, Vikings, when they came to North America, when the Leif Erikson expedition that established Vinland, went way deep down into the middle of North America, down through Hudson's Bay, which was a thing people really wanted, particularly people of Nordic ancestry, because somehow that was super special. And this was before the actual settlement was found in 1960 on the coast of Newfoundland. And when that happened, everyone went, oh, yeah, that's fine. We feel great about that. And they stopped wanting to think that the Vikings went deep into North America. But in the 1930s, this was something a lot of people really wanted to be true. And so the story starts with a prospector and railroad man who's working a gold claim. Uh, there was a bit of a gold rush in uh, northern Ontario around this time, helped by the fact that the U.S. changed 
its relationship to the gold standard and the price of gold went up fivefold overnight. <laughs> so that was a great inspiration for them. So anyway, he was working this claim in uh, Beardmore in kind of near Thunder Bay in Northern Ontario, so way up there. And he had uh, various stories about exactly when he found a uh, broken, rusted Viking sword, an axe head, and another piece of metal that he sometimes described as a pick that he didn't exactly know what it was. And he said that he found these, he dug them up on his uh, mining claim. And eventually, several years after he said he discovered it, and the time that he quoted as when he discovered it kind of shifts throughout the narrative, because one of the problems with this is that the narrators on both sides, there's a lot of people testifying that Eddie is, is uh, actually found these things. There's other people saying that he's squirrely. And both of them, both sides of people in the Beardmore area, their stories don't line up with each other and they're inconsistent. And so that allows people who want to believe to believe. So at any rate, a guy named Teddy Elliott, he's a school teacher. And in July 34, uh, he's in the area, he's on the train. And suddenly the train slows down as it moves through Northern Ontario because Eddie has taken newspapers, set them on fire, and put them on the train tracks. And here's a little 1930s detail for you. That's how you get a train to stop for you so you can get on it in a wilderness area. So he does this. The two of them get to talking. And Eddie Dodd tells him about the relics that he found on his property. He says, I'm not sure what they are. Maybe they're Indian. Maybe they're French. I don't know. Because uh, Eddie is using that time-honored swindler's M.O. of letting other people leap to the conclusion that he wants them to leap to. Mm -hmm. So this conversation happens in July of 34. In August, Teddy Elliott goes uh, to Dodd's home and he sees these items. And then he contacts a titanic figure of uh, Toronto and Canadian culture, Charles Trick Curley, who's the head at that time of the archaeology department at the Royal Ontario Museum. And at that time, it's really five museums in one, and they're all affiliated with the University of Toronto. And if you know Toronto, you know that those two things are, are right next to each other and also next to Queen's Park, the seat of the provincial government. So Curley is a fascinating guy. He is connected to uh, some pretty heavy-duty Ontario families, and he thinks he's going to be a minister, but then he goes to England and sort of on a whim, sort of starts to develop his interest in antiquity. And so in 1902, he gets to know the coins curator of the British Museum, who recommends a dealer to him that he goes to. And he goes to that dealer near the British Museum. And instead of buying coins, he buys an Egyptian funerary figurine. So he's in the British Museum looking at the Egyptology section. He drops his uh, little funerary statue. And the curator looks at it and goes, oh, you're interested in Egyptology, you should meet my pal Flinders Petrie. And so at this point, he goes and meets the world-famous Egyptologist. Yeah. And normally you have to like be in Petrie's class for two years before he even considers recruiting you to go to a dig. But Petrie, you know, likes the cut of his jib and goes, you're hired on the spot. And so suddenly... Curly is in Egypt running stuff for Petri. He develops a nose for fakes and a nose for organizing things. And that is sort of the, the seat of the, his archaeological legend that he then, when he goes back to Toronto, leverages to become first a curator and then the director of uh, archaeology at the ROM. So he is now in the 30s at the height of his power. He's a flamboyant character who wears a cape and a slouch hat, and he's a famous raconteur who corrals the juniors at lunchtime to tell them exciting stories of his adventures in Egypt. And he's a grand old man, and he wants to believe that these Viking artifacts were really found on that site, even though Andy Dodd has some weird stuff to say initially about exactly how he found it. Like, he initially claims that it was embedded in the Precambrian rock which is not where you find things that are a thousand years old. Yeah. Uh, so the story shifts to become more credible and Curly decides that they're clearly authentic and they, these are authentic items. And so a government man uh, looked at them and pronounced uh, Dodd uh, straight up. So therefore, someone reliable is vouching for this. It must be true. The people who start vouching against Dodd are uh, low characters. So therefore, what they're saying cannot be true. He's initially 
a little cagey about saying that this is authentic. It takes a long time to publish anything. But as he goes along, he starts to kind of get sucked more into the story and more of his authority. And he starts cutting corners. So when he contacts, for example, Nordic archaeologists, he won't tell them where it came from. So they're reluctant to share information. There's a crucial book that he needs, uh, but there's only one copy in North America. And so what he doesn't find out for a long time is that the sword and the axe are from different eras. Mm. Uh, and they're from the wrong part of uh, Norway for them to have anything to do with uh, Leif Erikson. But he manages to assert his authority long enough that when Teddy Elliott, the guy who initially met Dodd on the train, he starts to smell a rat and he partners with other people to become researching this. And he begins to unravel the real story. But at the same time, once the sword and uh, axe and little bit of metal go on display, that excites a whole lot of other people who want to believe in the central North American exploration of uh, the Vikings. And this hooks into two other items that people are sure at that time are proof of this. And one is, is the Kensington Rune Stone, which I think you know about, Ken. Yeah, that, that's a, a stone. It was found in Kensington, Minnesota. It has scratches on it. And, oh my God, those scratches are runes. And they were uh, found. Uh, and you will note, perhaps, that Minnesota is full of Swedish immigrants to America. And the inscription said, uh, hey, we're Scandinavian explorers. We're Vikings. We're here in Minnesota. It's 1362. Pretty cool. And everyone's very excited about it. The actual Kensington runestone is a forgery, but uh, at the time, uh, first of all, it's harder to detect forgeries carved into stone, and you can't compare it to someone's handwriting. Unless you consult Nordic language experts who right. immediately said it was a forgery. Right, yeah. See, yeah, the, the, the runes are the wrong era, basically, is the problem. And because someone opened a book of runes and carved it into their stone in the 1890s in, in Minnesota. But it's a big deal. It's sort of a local... Boy Makes Good story in Kensington. Various people in the area. I, I think there's still a Kensington Runestone Museum. If you go to that part of Minnesota, you can still see the runestone. It's owned by the Chamber of Commerce. If you go into the Chamber of Commerce, you can look at it. Mm. But there are still believers in, in this, uh, <laughs> in the runestone. There are not still believers in the third part of the tripod that led people to believe in extensive uh, Viking settlement of North America, which was the Newport Tower which is in Rhode Island. Now, you say there are not still believers, Robin. There are still believers in the Newport Tower. Well, maybe there still are. Yeah. But uh, this is something that scholars in the mid-1800s decided was probably of Viking origin. They ignored the bit in the uh, diary of the person who owned the place, who is Benedict Arnold, <laughs> who wrote about building that tower. Not not the famous Benedict Arnold. It's an ancestor of that Benedict oh, Arnold. It's a, it's, an, it's a previous Benedict Arnold. Right. Yeah. So at any rate, unless you consider Benedict Arnold to be a Viking name, also not a Viking place. Yeah, Newport Tower comes onto people's radar a lot of times through Lovecraft because it has the same sort of uh, architectural construction as some of the stuff in Charles Dexter Ward, and people are like, was Lovecraft inspired by the Newport Tower to, to write? Um, uh, and a lot of people uh, get it confused up with Lurker at the Threshold, which is mostly by August Orleth anyway, uh, and the answer is no. Lovecraft was not inspired by the Newport Tower. He knew that it was a colonial uh, ruin. He never thought at any point that it was Vikings, and he would make fun of people who thought it was, because as a good Providence man, he thought nothing valuable was in Newport. All right, but there are lots of people who are very excited by the idea that Vikings were uh, perhaps married into uh, indigenous families. There is a, a myth of the white Indian, which of course is uh, super racist, as you can mm -hmm. <laughs> imagine yeah. from those two birds being put together. Yes. And, and in the American South, they're not Vikings anymore because most of the people in the American South are Irish or Scots-Irish. So they become miraculously Welshmen. But it's still our ancestors were here before anybody and trying to sort of, I guess, steal valor or steal historical status from the actual uh, Native Americans. Right. And so when Teddy Elliott started digging, what he discovered is that Eddie Dodd rented a house from a guy named James Hansen of uh, Nordic origin, and that Hansen had some stuff in the house he rented, and that maybe Eddie helped himself to it. Mm -hmm. And that further, that Hansen acquired some relics from a guy named John Block, who emigrated from Norway and whose father was an illustrator 
of uh, Viking scenes and an enthusiast and might very well have owned this rusted broken sword and uh, also the, the little bit of metal turned out to be a wrangle, which is a sort of a ritual bit of sort of harness. So they really are Viking artifacts, but it's very clear that they were not dug up on uh, Eddie Dodd's claim. However, Curley had much more cultural influence than Teddy Elliott, a mere school teacher, and so managed to keep this suppressed until uh, long after his death. And after he died, finally, the museum did a new investigation. The full facts, which had already been uncovered, were finally fully acknowledged, and these items were taken off display. However, they're back on display. They came back on display after the museum was recently renovated. There's no description uh, to indicate anything about the Beardmore hoax. They're just there uh, described as bits of, of Viking armament, which indeed they are. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a story of people really wanting to believe something. Many books were written at that time uh, treating the Beardmore find as conclusively proven because Curly stood behind it. And it's a, uh, in retrospect, yeah, I remember as a kid reading, um, like Farley Moat's book about Vinland and he was all in on the Beardmore hoax and the Kensington Rinstone. Yes. Uh, one of the icons of early Canadian literature, uh, really, uh, ran with all of that stuff and was treated as, as real until, it, and it was very quietly taken off to say, yeah. and even more quietly. <laughs> you, you don't really, you know, call the newspapers and say, stop the presses museum taken by hoaxer. Yes. Well, they did call the press, but they didn't call them quite that hard. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think this would be a fun thing to have going on in the background of uh, some sort of story. And in fact, you know, maybe something from eons ago is dug up uh, not far from Beardmore once this is underway and people dismiss it. Oh, it's just another, just another hoax. Uh, but of course, this is from something uh, much older and from a civilization that perhaps could have their artifacts embedded in Precambrian rock. Or maybe the, it's just the the act of a, a really chill group of Canadian esoterists where they're not trying to create gigantic cognitive dissonance in, you know, mass hysteria. They're just trying to mess with people in the museum or like, oh, man, I know that's a... A, a phony relic, but Curly says it's not. So you have sort of this low simmering fifties Douglas Cirque kind of a esoteric game where it's just this sort of knowledge that the museum is, is lying about these artifacts is sort of trickling out and uh, it becomes like a little, a very quiet uh, hell mouth inside the Royal Ontario museum. Maybe the Ezo annoyers. Ezo, Ezo irritators. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, climb out of this, uh, this here mining claim and uh, see what might wait for us on the other side of this commercial. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time once more to climb up the creakety cobweb stairs where we're just going to very quickly wave at the uh, magical fire salamander head on in. We're already uh, running past time on our previous segments, Ken, but we've got a, another big old segment to get to at the behest of beloved backer Benjamin Rawls because he would like to know about happy science. And this is probably for people who don't live in Japan the cult that's not on their radar because Am Shinrikyo, uh, which will come up later, sort of stole the spotlight. But they take a lot of very familiar themes from occult and elliptony and repackage them in, let's say, an also all too familiar and unfortunately all too successful way. Yeah. Happy Science is, as you as you say, it's a cult. It 
is the brainchild, if that's the word we want, of a fellow named Ryuho Okawa, born in 1956. He's the son of a guy who wrote under the name Saburo Yoshikawa. Yoshikawa begins as a communist agitator and rapidly sublimates those desires in the increasingly fascist Japan of the 30s into new thought sectarianism, which is equally un-Bushido, but is at least not as likely to get you thrown in prison. And uh, there's a group called the Saicho no Ie, which are syncretic monotheists, and the God Light Association, which is a Christian Buddhist uh, syncretism. So Yoshikawa is sort of a, a new age follower and occasionally writer. So his son is brought up in this environment, and his son, by his own accounting, is worthless. He, he written many, many volumes in which he says, I was worthless. I couldn't concentrate on anything. No one liked me. Girls mocked me. This is sort of the, the before picture in the Charles Atlas ad, I guess. But Ken, is there a transformation on the way? Well, thank goodness there is. He receives a Buddha enlightenment in 1981 while he's busy failing out of college. And he's contacted by the disciple of Nichiren, the founder of Zen Buddhism, a guy named Nikko Shonen, via automatic writing. And the automatic writing says, you know, basically, hang in there, kid. It doesn't draw a kitty. But it's that sort of, you know, a buck up. Then Nichiren, after Nikko Shonen has opened the way, channels his way into him. And as he starts talking about how he's channeling Nichiren and getting uh, wisdom, his father, Yoshikawa, the inveterate joiner, becomes... A disciple of his son. He strokes his beard and or chin and says, this seems kind of like Edgar Casey, and that's lucrative. Let's jump aboard. And that we can do. Uh, so anyway, he gets a job as a foreign exchange trader for the Toman Corporation, which is a mutual fund or a, or a brokerage firm in Japan. And in his off hours is channeling various ascended masters. He channels Moses. He channels Buddha. He channels, I, I think, uh, Jesus a couple of times. And he sort of finishes out by channeling Nostradamus, Although by the time he's channeling Nostradamus, he has resigned from Toman Corp because his books on the topic of all my channeled experiences have begun selling. Again, one assumes thanks to his dad. And one, one thing that his dad or he insist on very early is never translate my books into any other language. And there is unkind speculation that that is because if you are an English speaker and you read these books, uh, you'll say, well, this is just warmed over, plagiarized Blavatsky and Casey. And indeed it is. But the books sort of give him a, a groundwork on which to found Happy Science, which is the name of his, you know, religious movement slash cult. Right. Which doesn't sound quite as goofy in the original Japanese as it does in that translation in English. Right. Well, the English name is the Institute for Research into Human Happiness. So they're already sort of looking to the future in that. But the Japanese word... It really is just happy science, and that's what we're going to keep calling it, because it's fun. So anyway, in 1989, he's gotten married. He reveals that he's an incarnation of the Buddha. That's big news to everyone. And then in 1991, he says, you know what? I, it's even better than being an incarnation of the Buddha. I'm also the incarnation of Osiris and Hermes and Moses and a bunch of guys, because all those guys are avatars of the god El Cantare, the grand spirit of the terrestrial spirit group. And I love that even the gods have got like a holding corporation. That's just <laughs> the terrestrial spirit group opened for the band, I think, in the, in the, in the late seventies. Yeah. But anyway, in 1991, he reveals that he's an avatar of El Cantare. And that sort of is the final form of happy science is this 1991 revelation. He goes and rewrites all the books to, you know, lead up to the fact that, you know, nope, things have changed. And the rules of happy science are exploration of the right mind, meaning study all the books and buy them. There's a fourfold path to happiness. Uh, that's giving love, <laughs> wisdom, reflection, and progress. You'll note Skeptical questioning of happy science, not one of the paths to happiness. And finally, El Cantare belief, which is just believe that El Cantare is a god and has, you know, incarnated in Okawa. And El Cantare is just your standard sort of boring monotheist god. Uh, he brings light. He fights right. darkness. These are the limp platitudes we're used to from yeah. all sorts of channelers in the New Age movement. And so right. Forth. And Methodism, for that matter. But... <laughs> 
<laughs> Elbow shot at the Methodist. Yeah, the they know what they did. So anyway, the cult, you know, blows up. It's very big in Japan, as they say. Uh, he opens a New York branch of it in 1994. By now, it has branches in South Korea, Brazil, Uganda, United Kingdom, Australia, India, and Singapore. So it's got something going on. Right. But also, he starts throwing down with Am Shinrikyo in a sort of new kid on the block move, which seems like a terrible idea. Also, the ideologist of right. Am Shinrikyo. Oh, he doesn't know at the time that they're, he's messing with murderous nihilists. Yeah, right. But, and their ideologist basically has read his books and says, these books are terrible. This is a con. How can you even compare yourself to our incarnated Buddha wisdom? You're a loser and a dropout and all your books are plagiarized. And then they punctuate that literary criticism by putting VX in his car's air conditioner. He survives that. And I guess then Om Shinrikyo goes off and has its own problems. So he sort of survives by default. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to survive the cult, lay off the mass murder. Yeah. I think that that's really step one. He has Happy Science University. He has his own printing press to publish his books, a publishing company. He has boarding schools that you can send your useless weasel kids to. And he has media entertainment divisions that make Happy Science films. He claims that there are 11 million members. This is probably based on total purchasing of his books. The hater estimate by the Japanese government is 30,000 members. So the truth is probably closer to B than A, but you know, whatever. Uh, his dad dies in 2003, but by then he's got enough gumption that he can keep things going relatively smoothly. Uh, founds a political party, the Happiness Realization Party, which you'll be gratified to know wins no seats in national elections whatsoever. Well, it wasn't called the Vote Realization Party. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that's the problem. At one point, one member of Japan's upper chamber, so their equivalent of senator, switches parties in 2010, but more, I think, to thumb his nose at his old party than because he actually believes in any of this nonsense. And he immediately is beaten for re-election because people are like, you joined a cult, you weirdo. So they have some local counselors now, but there's no national impact of the happiness party. Uh, he divorces his wife in 2011 for negative thoughts, which I did not even know that was grounds for divorce, but there we go. And uh, I guess the biggest news since is that his eldest son who is supposed to inherit the throne uh, and even they'd gone to the trouble of picking him out a gravura model to marry who was a uh, an actress named fumika shimizu who came out as a happy scientist he either didn't want to marry a model slash actress or thought he w had no more interest in this he had a youtube channel and he says happy science is, is nonsense i want no part of it i'm out and so the succession goes on to his sister. The cult is still ticking along during COVID. They, of course, were selling, you know, spiritual vaccines full of Buddha water and nothing else. Yeah, they took a look at the Epoch Times and thought they would, uh, speaking of plagiarizing, take some uh, leaves out of their book and their expansion attempts. I don't know if it's, you know, in its twilight years as a cult or if it's just ticking along self-sustainingly as as uh, the uh, the seeds that it uh, sowed in the 90s are now bearing fruit and people's kids and gravure models are being brought up in it. But Well, until very recently, they had a storefront in my neighborhood. In your neighborhood. Near the coolest comic store in uh, in Toronto, The Beguiling. There was a, a storefront that had were offering copies of their giant tome that you could pick up. So I'm confused now about this whole no translation edict because uh, they had... They had tomes out, out on the street for you to pick up and take home. So they must have decided to translate something. Well, maybe once his dad died and uh, stopped the no translation order, Okawa was like, I'm El Cantari. What can go wrong? And also, you know, if Am Shinrikyo can't kill you over your plagiarism, what are Canadians going to do? Right. And so at least, you know, they had money to, to rent that store for a yeah, long time. No, I mean, and, uh, I, I assume that it's a, a self-sustaining grift at this point. It's not you know, a, a world-changing self-sustaining grift like the Moonies, but it's still got stuff going on. I, I think in a gaming context, this becomes sort of a, a model for a just dangerous enough cult, if you want to Cthulhu it up, or a just helpful enough patron, if you want to say Happy Science is out there fighting the good fight against Nirlathotep and Dom Shinrikyo, that it's it's a good size is what I'm saying. You right. could imagine taking it down if you're just a bunch of nice black agents guys. You could imagine them having some help for you if you're uh, Cthulhu fighters in Japan who are on your back foot and don't really know what's going on. But they can't solve any real problems for you. They can get you a storefront in Toronto. They can get you a one-on-one -on -one with Nostradamus. 
they can maybe get you a Gravira model if you, uh, you know, sign up early. But other than that, you're on your own, which I think it's, it's a good thing to look at. Even if you don't use these guys specifically, you can obviously, this is a clone of a model that has been going on in America and Britain since the 1890s, at least. So you can put this same sort of structure to work. And again, as we see, you know, they've got a happy science in Canada and Uganda. So anywhere in the world can have a front of one of these weird little new thought cults, right? Right. I'd be tempted to use my favorite Okawa fact, which is that he doesn't just channel all of these gods that he is a reincarnation of, but he can also channel and does living people, including world leaders. Uh, So he's channeled Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, and Boris Johnson. (laughs) Now, I think you could probably just get the actual Boris Johnson now for pretty cheap, but this could be your way for your uh, agents to, you know, covertly have a deniable meeting with uh, with Barack Obama or some other uh, worthy that you want to have them communicate with. And, uh, you know, you could just head into a storefront and get on the Zoom channel and uh, through the auspices of the uh, of the cult leader, uh, they can then give you your instructions from whatever uh, actual world leader you're uh, you're working for. Right. Yeah, that's actually a, a really good um, untappable uh, secret communication source. So if you wanted to do, you know, that sort of globe spanning activist Ordo Veritatis that we were talking about, this can be how they send messages is that there's this sort of, you know, tame cult that they have that gives them a, a plausible window into the occult underground of various dangerous places, but you can go there and it's sort of a, a safe house in the same way that if you go to the, you know, it used to be, you could go to the offices of, of life or time magazine anywhere in the world. And you knew that you were one phone call away from the CIA, that sort of thing for the order of Veritatis. Now it's, is the, uh, not happy science cause they're bad, but uh, you know, happy, uh, happy geology or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Irked geology. Irked, yeah, ticked off science. Yeah. That's just regular science, though. Well, since we've um, gone full circle, it we foolish of us to go any further. So I guess it's time for us to uh, close up all the huts, uh, but we'll be back uh, with more a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast's authenticity unimpeachable by aligning with such backers as Taylor Harless Jamie Twine Phil Groff Liz and Siski and Terry Robinson Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin Check out our latest horrific design This could have been an email On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs> <laughs>